Section 12 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5 by Alexander Dumas, Section 12 On April 17th, about four in the afternoon, a score of workmen and gossiping women had collected in front of a shop. A stout woman, standing on the lowest step, like an orator in the tribune, held forth and related for the twentieth time what she knew, or rather did not know. There were listening ears and gaping mouths. Even a slight shudder ran through the group, for the widow Masson, discovering a gift of eloquence at the age of sixty, contrived to mingle great warmth and much indignation in her recital. All at once silence fell on the crowd, and a passage was made for Monsieur de la Motte. One man ventured to ask, "'Is there anything fresh to-day?' A sad shake of the head was the only answer, and the unhappy man continued his way. "'Is that Monsieur de la Motte?' inquired a particularly dirty woman, whose cap, stuck on the side of her head, allowed locks of grey hair to straggle from under it. "'Ah, uh, is that Monsieur de la Motte? "'Dear me,' said a neighbour, "'don't you know him by this time? "'He passes every day.' "'Excuse me, I don't belong to this quarter, "'and no offence, "'but it is not so beautiful "'as to bring one out of curiosity. "'Nothing personal, but it is rather dirty.' "'Madame is probably accustomed to use a carriage. "'That would suit you better than me, my dear.' and would save you having to buy shoes to keep your feet off the ground. The crowd seemed inclined to hustle the speaker. "'Wait a moment,' she continued. "'I didn't mean to offend anyone. I am a poor woman, but there's no disgrace in that, and I can afford a glass of liqueur. Hey, good gossip, you understand, don't you? A drop of the best for Mother Manifray.' and if my fine friend there will drink with me to settle our difference, I will stand her a glass. The example set by the old hawker was contagious, and instead of filling two little glasses only, Widow Masson dispensed a bottleful. "'Come, you have done well,' cried Mother Manifray. "'My idea has brought you luck. Faith, not before it was wanted, either. What?' "'Are you complaining of trade, too?' "'Ah, don't mention it. It is miserable.' "'There's no trade at all. I scream myself hoarse all day and choke myself for tuppence halfpenny. I don't know what's to come of it all. But you seem to have a nice little custom.' "'What's the good of that with a whole house on one's hands? It's just my luck. The old tenants go, and the new ones don't come.' "'What's the matter, then?' "'I think the devil's in it. There was a nice man on the first floor. Gone. 
"'A decent family on the third. "'All right, except that the man beat his wife every night "'and made such a row that no one could sleep. "'Gone also. "'I put up notices. "'No one even looks at them. "'A few months ago, it was the middle of December, "'the day of the last execution. "'The fifteenth, then,' said the hawker. "'I cried it, so I know. "'It's my trade, that.' "'Very well, then, the fifteenth, resumed Widow Masson. "'On that day, then, I let the cellar to a man who said he was a wine merchant, and who paid a term in advance, seeing that I didn't know him, and wouldn't have lent him a farthing on the strength of his good looks. He was a little bit of a man, no taller than that,' contemptuously holding out her hand, "'and he had two round eyes which I didn't like at all.' "'He certainly paid, he did that. "'But we are more than half through the second term, "'and I have no news of my tenant.' "'And have you never seen him since?' "'Yes, once. "'No, twice. "'Let's see, three times, I am sure. "'He came with a handcart and a commissionaire, "'and he had a big chest taken downstairs, "'a case which he said contained wine-bottles.' "'No, he came before that with a workman, I think.' "'Really? I don't know if it was before or after. doesn't matter. Anyhow, it was bottled wine. The third time he brought a mason, and I am sure they quarrelled. I heard their voices. He carried off the key, and I have seen neither him nor his wine again. I have another key, and I went down one day.' "'Perhaps the rats have drunk the wine and eaten the chest, "'for there certainly is nothing there any more than there is in my hand now. "'Nevertheless, I saw what I saw, a big chest, very big, quite new, "'and corded all round with strong rope.' "'Now what day was that?' asked the hawker. "'What day? Well, it was—no, I can't remember.' "'Nor I either. I am getting stupid. Let's have another little glass, shall we, just to clear our memories?' The expedient was not crowned with success. The memories failed to recover themselves. The crowd waited, attentive, as may be supposed. Suddenly the hawker exclaimed, "'What a fool I am! I'm going to find that. If only I've still got it. She felt eagerly in the pocket of her underskirt and produced several pieces of dirty, crumpled paper. As she unfolded one after another, she asked, "'A big chest, wasn't it?' "'Yes, very big. And quite new?' "'Quite new. And corded?' "'Yes, I can see it now. So can I, good gracious. It was the day when I sold the history of Le Roi de Valine, the first of February.' "'Yes, it was a Saturday. The next day was Sunday. "'That's it, that's it, Saturday, February 1st. "'Well, I know that chest, too. "'I met your wine merchant on the Place du Louvre, "'and he wasn't precisely enjoying himself. "'One of his creditors wanted to seize the chest, the wine, the whole kettle of fish. "'A little man, isn't he? A scarecrow. "'Just so, and has red hair?' "'That's the man, and looks a hypocrite. "'You've hit it exactly. "'And he is a hypocrite, enough to make one shudder. 
"'No doubt he can't pay his rent. "'A thief, my dears, a beggarly thief, "'who set fire to his own cellar, "'and who accused me of trying to steal from him, "'while it was he who cheated me, "'the villain, out of a piece of twenty-four sous.' "'It's lucky I turned up here. "'Well, well, we shall have some fun. "'Here's another little business on your hands. "'And you will have to say where that wine has got to, "'my dear gossip de Rue.' "'De Rue?' cried twenty voices all at once. "'What? De Rue, who is in prison?' "'Why, that's Monsieur de Lamotte's man.' "'The man who killed Madame de Lamotte?' "'The man who made away with her son? "'A scoundrel, my dears, who accused me of stealing, an absolute monster.' "'It is just a little unfortunate,' said Widow Masson, "'that it isn't the man. "'My tenant calls himself Ducoudre. "'There's his name on the register.' "'Confound it! "'That doesn't look like it at all,' said the hawker. "'Now that's a bore.' "'Oh, yes, I have a grudge against that thief who accused me of stealing. "'I told him I should sell his history some day. "'When that happens, I'll treat you all round.' "'As a foretaste of the fulfilment of this promise, "'the company disposed of a second bottle of liqueur, "'and becoming excited, they chattered at random for some time, "'but at length slowly dispersed.' and the street relapsed into the silence of night. But a few hours later the inhabitants were surprised to see the two ends occupied by unknown people, while other sinister-looking persons patrolled it all night, as if keeping guard. The next morning a carriage escorted by police stopped at the widow Masson's door. An officer of police got out, and entered a neighbouring house, whence he emerged a quarter of an hour later, with Monsieur de Lamotte leaning on his arm. The officer demanded the key of the cellar, which last December had been hired from the widow Masson by a person named Ducoudre, and went down to it with Monsieur de Lamotte and one of his subordinates. The carriage standing at the door, the presence of the commissioner Mutel, the chatter of the previous evening, had naturally aroused everybody's imagination. But this excitement had to be kept for home use. The whole street was under arrest, and its inhabitants were forbidden to leave their houses. The windows crammed with anxious faces, questioning each other, in the expectation of something wonderful, were a curious sight, and the ignorance in which they remained these mysterious preparations, these orders silently executed, doubled the curiosity, and added a sort of terror. No one could see the persons who had accompanied the police officer. Three men remained in the carriage, one guarded by the two others. When the heavy coach turned into the Rue de la Mortellerie, this man had bent towards the closed window and asked, "'Where are we?' And when they answered him, he said, "'I do not know this street. I was never in it.' After saying this quite quietly, he asked, "'Why am I brought here?' As no one replied, he resumed his look of indifference, 
and betrayed no emotion, neither when the carriage stopped, nor when he saw Monsieur de Lamotte enter the widow Masson's house. The officer reappeared on the threshold, and ordered de Roux to be brought in. The previous evening, detectives, mingling with the crowd, had listened to the hawker's story of having met de Roux near the Louvre, escorting a large chest. The police magistrate was informed in the course of the evening. It was an indication, a ray of light, perhaps the actual truth, detached from obscurity by chance gossip, and measures were instantly taken to prevent any one either entering or leaving the street without being followed and examined. Mutel thought he was on the track, but the criminal might have accomplices also on the watch, who, warned in time, might be able to remove the proofs of the crime, if any existed. Derouz was placed between two men, who held each arm. A third went before, holding a torch. The commissioner, followed by men also carrying torches, and provided with spades and pickaxes, came behind, and in this order they descended to the vault. It was a dismal and terrifying procession. Anyone beholding these dark and sad countenances, this pale and resigned man, passing thus into these damp vaults illuminated by the flickering glare of torches, might well have thought himself the victim of illusion, and watching some gloomy execution in a dream. But all was real, and when light penetrated this dismal charnel-house, it seemed at once to illuminate its secret depths, so that the light of truth might at length penetrate these dark shadows, and that the voice of the dead would speak from the earth and the walls. "'Wretch!' exclaimed Monsieur de Lamotte, when he saw Derouz appear. "'Is it here that you murdered my wife and my son?' Derouz looked calmly at him, and replied, "'I beg you, sir, not to add insult to the misfortunes you have already caused. If you stood in my place and I were in yours, I should feel some pity and respect for so terrible a position. What do you want me, and why am I brought here?' He did not know the events of last evening, and could only mentally accuse the mason who had helped to bury the chest. He felt that he was lost but his audacity never forsook him. "'You are here in the first place to be confronted with this woman,' said the officer, causing the widow Masson to stand opposite to him. "'I do not know her. "'But I know you, and know you well. "'It was you who hired this cellar under the name of Ducoudray.' Derouz shrugged his shoulders and answered bitterly, "'I can understand a man being condemned to the torture if he is guilty, but that in order to accomplish one's mission as accuser, and to discover a criminal, 
false witnesses who can give no evidence should be brought a hundred leagues, that the rabble should be roused up, that divers faces and imaginary names should be bestowed on an innocent man, in order to turn a movement of surprise or an indignant gesture to his disadvantage, all this is iniquitous, and goes beyond the right of judgment bestowed upon men by God. I do not know this woman, and no matter what she says or does, I shall say no more. Neither the skill nor threats of the police officer could shake this resolution. It was to no purpose that the widow Masson repeated and asseverated that she recognised him as her tenant du Coudray, and that he had had a large case of wine taken down into the cellar. Derues folded his arms and remained as motionless as if he had been blind and deaf. The walls were sounded, the stones composing them carefully examined, the floor pierced in several places, but nothing unusual was discovered. Would they have to give it up? Already the officer was making signs to this effect, when the man who had remained at first below with Monsieur de Lamotte, and who, standing in shadow, had carefully watched Derue when he was brought down, came forward and, pointing to the recess under the stairs, said, "'Examine this corner.' The prisoner glanced involuntarily in this direction when he came down. I have watched him, and it is the only sign he has given.' I was the only person who could see him, and he did not see me. He is very clever, but one can't be forever on one's guard, and may the devil take me if I haven't scented the hiding-place. "'Wretch!' said Derou to himself. "'Then you have had your hand on me for a whole hour, and amused yourself by prolonging my agony. Oh, I ought to have known it, I have found my master. Never mind, you shall learn nothing from my face, nor yet from the decaying body you will find. Worms and poison can only have left an unrecognizable corpse. An iron rod sunk into the ground encountered a hard substance some four feet below. Two men set to work and dug with energy. Every eye was fixed upon this trench, increasing in depth with every shovelful of earth which the two labourers cast aside. Monsieur de Lamotte was nearly fainting, and his emotion impressed everyone except Derue. At length the silence was broken by the spades striking heavily on wood, and the noise made everyone shudder. The chest was uncovered and hoisted out of the trench. It was opened, and the body of a woman was seen, clad only in a chemise, with a red and white headband, face downwards. The body was turned over, and Monsieur de Lamotte recognised his wife, not yet disfigured. The feeling of horror was so great that no one spoke, or uttered a sound. Derue, occupied in considering the few chances which remained to him, had not observed that 
by the officer's order, one of the guards had left the cellar before the men began to dig. Everybody had drawn back, both from the corpse and the murderer, who alone had not moved, and who was repeating prayers. The flame of the torches placed on the ground cast a reddish light on this silent and terrible scene. Derouze started and turned round on hearing a terrified cry behind him. His wife had just been brought to the cellar. The commissioner seized her with one hand, and taking a torch in the other, compelled her to look down on the body. "'It is Madame de Lamotte!' she exclaimed. "'Yes, yes,' she answered, overwhelmed with terror. "'Yes, I recognise her.' Unable to support the sight any longer, she grew pale and fainted away. She and her husband were removed separately. One would have supposed the discovery was already known outside, for the people showered curses and cries of "'Assassin!' and "'Poisoner!' on the carriage which conveyed de Roux. He remained silent during the drive, but before re-entering his dungeon, he said, "'I must have been mad when I sought to hide the death and burial of Madame de Lamotte from public knowledge. It is the only sin I have committed, and innocent of aught else, I resign myself as a Christian to the judgment of God.' It was the only line of defence which remained open to him, and he clung to it with the hope of imposing on the magistrates by redoubled hypocrisy and pious observances. But all this laboriously constructed scaffolding of lies was shaken to its base and fell away, piece by piece. Every moment brought fresh and overwhelming revelations. He professed that Madame de Lamotte had died suddenly in his house, and that, fearing suspicion, he had buried her secretly. But the doctors called on to examine the body declared that she had been poisoned with corrosive sublimate and opium. The pretended payment was clearly an odious imposture, the receipt a forgery. Then, like a threatening spectre, rose another question, to which he found no reply, and his own invention turned against him. Why, knowing his mother was no more, had he taken young de la Motte to Versailles? What had become of the youth? What had befallen him? Once on the track, the cooper, with whom he had lodged on the 12th of February, was soon discovered, and an act of Parliament ordered the exhumation of the corpse, buried under the name of Beaupre, which the cooper identified by a shirt which he had given for the burial. De Roux, confounded by the evidence, asserted that the youth died of indigestion and venereal disease. But the doctors again declared the presence of corrosive sublimate and opium. All this evidence of guilt he met with assumed resignation, lamenting incessantly for Edouard, whom he declared he had loved as his own son. Alas, he said, I see that poor boy every night. 
but it softens my grief to know that he was not deprived of the last consolations of religion. God, who sees me, and who knows my innocence, will enlighten the magistrates, and my honour will be vindicated. The evidence being complete, de Roux was condemned by sentence of the Châtelet, pronounced April 30th, and confirmed by Parliament May 5th. We give the decree as it is found in the archives. End of section 12 Reading by Tom Denham